foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. Revolution. I am Jasmine at Code Pink and welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington DC, KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting WMCBLP 107.9 FM We're also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts Check out our website at www.codepink.org/radio where you will find all our episodes from episode 1 to our most recent since October 7th, the world has watched in horror as over 20,000 Palestinians have been murdered, officially surpassing the 1948 Nakba in deadliness. In the past week that a ceasefire has been called, the IDF has violated it many times and continues to harass, assault, and murder Palestinian civilians. We are seeing settler colonization live and in action, and we are witnessing the plight of an oppressed people to liberate themselves and the land. It's easy to fall into a sense of helplessness when watching such inhumane violence through our screens from thousands of miles away. But we all have a role and responsibility in ending the occupation of Palestine. For many of us, that looks like educating ourselves and those around us on what's happening and finding ways to disrupt business as usual for the industries and spaces that turn a blind eye to apartheid and genocide. Today, we'll be chatting with Sarajam, a New York City-based, South Asian, gender-based violence advocate and educator. Sarajam has years of experience connecting the dots between state violence and gender-based violence as a direct service provider, researcher, and organizer. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so I would love to, if you could start off telling us about what got you interested in doing gender-based violence advocacy work. You know, how, what was your journey up until now? Absolutely. So I think I was kind of doing this work um, before I even opted in professionally in familial contexts and in supporting friends and community members navigating gender-based violence. Um, and so it kind of happened naturally, like the people I found myself around, the issues I found myself around. And um, in college, when I ended up studying um, uh, 
everything like you know gender capitalism and these systems and started connecting the dots between the systems and interpersonal dynamics um it became really important for me to continue to connect those dots in advocacy spaces um and i think that's how i ended up doing this professionally because i saw a dearth of um those uh, connections happening in um DV spaces in advocacy spaces in general. Yeah. So could you tell us like what are some of those intersections or connections that you've uncovered or witnessed regarding, you know, any aspects of gender-based violence and how it intersects with other systems, but specifically, you know, also war and militarism, um, how those kind of relationships form? Yeah, absolutely. So just speaking from personal experience, I mean, I came to this um, country as an asylum seeker uh, because I we were me and my family were experiencing gender-based violence and it and it was and we were seeking a political asylum. So it even building that case and advocating for ourselves in the US immigration um, systems was really complicated because I think people only understand like, the political and personal as like separate spaces, especially when intimate uh, intimate uh, partner violence or familial violence takes place. And I think people um, don't really, un like they want to put it in one of the two boxes, right? It's either personal or it's state violence, but that the fact that state violence can create conditions for personal violence and they can like feed off of each other um, that was something that I feel like as a 14 year old, even I had to quickly make sense of and grapple with because I was trying to, uh, along with our lawyers, like, you know, literally convince um, the U.S. immigration that, no, we are in an unsafe condition and we have to, um, you know, we are um, we do need the asylum in order to seek safety, um, not just you know, from individuals in Bangladesh, but from the state as well, because the state was a big part of the violence that we experienced. Um, so I think um, in terms of intersections, like um, for the first time, as I was navigating the systems in the US, I also confronted um, with Islamophobia mm -hmm. and racism. I'm sure some versions of those existed in Bangladesh as well, but it's very, it shows up very differently in the belly of the beast, um, especially I think post 9-11 um, US context. I feel like if you, like I, I had to contend with what it's like to be racialized as Muslim, right? Like it's no longer like, like a faith our community like you're it's like it becomes an identity marker and how you navigate the systems right. and it's also i think islamophobia and gender-based violence um especially on state level has an intimate relationship as well because the so-called woman question has been used as a tool to uh for imperialism right u.s imperialism all over the uh, all, all over the world um, especially in the Muslim world, um, to essentially justify violence. Um, um, but, you know, as we know that the answer to violence can't be violence, like you can't be saying that 
oh, so-and-so is oppressed because of their gender, so we are going to inflict violence on the entire group of people as if that's the solution. So I think um, that's another, like, trope that um, actually, um, you know, it's not survivor-centered at all and actually makes um, the lives of survivors much um, difficult, much more difficult. Yeah, thank you for so much for sharing. I think, you know, hearing your story of coming here as a political asylum as a young teen just reminds me so much. And like you spoke so pointedly about being so young and recognizing those intersections because they were happening to you. You were living at the intersection of political and gender-based violence. And it makes me think about all the children in Palestine we've been seeing in recent weeks taking on so much and living so specifically at that intersection of being oppressed as children, you know, the media, American media won't even call them children. You know, they're people under 18 and, right. and, you know, as well as political repression, obviously, you know, living through multiple wars and, and living through a genocide and so much trauma at a young age mm -hmm. and gender violence, and, you know, the IDF in its rampant assaults and political repression, you know, the IDF is literally locking up children. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's so interesting to think about specifically how young people are one of the biggest populations that live in like again when we talk about like women and children and like like you said we can't just talk about violence against women without talking about what what's causing that violence like where is it right. coming from? it's not existing in a bubble and yeah. also if a mother is unsafe because of her political situation that of course is going to affect her children and like I don't know I think there's so many ways that young people get left out of this conversation. So I really would love to hear more from you. You know, you're a community educator and you're currently leading a youth leadership program where you're teaching young South Asian New Yorkers about adultism and exactly this, the plight and oppression of young people worldwide. Mm -hmm. um, so could you talk more about what it's been like to do this work during the ongoing genocide in Palestine where thousands of children have been martyred? Um, and you know, what are you noticing in these spaces with young New Yorkers what they're learning about Palestine and like how the conversation about the role of children is shifting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been really exciting to be working with um, young people and center young people in my work. I had to, even, even with my lived experiences, I had to do a lot of unlearning and trust, you know, their instincts and trust that they know the best for themselves as I was um, working as a youth advocate. And even in creating this youth leadership program, I think it made me really think that what are the things that I have to like offer or quote unquote teach to young people, right? Because it was very much, um, you know, the the protocols I received and the design I received was very, very like patronizing. It was kind of one unidirectional, right? Here's here's this information. This is this is the skills of a leader. And I'm kind of like throwing it on them and somehow they'll like turn into leaders or whatever that yeah. word means, right? Um, so when I came into this role and I um I had full flexibility of designing the program, I really wanted to focus on adultism because I think it's something we rarely talk about and was in in the very design was present in the very design of the program, right? Like how we like are kind of talking down to young people. We are telling them that this is how to be. Um, this is the proper way to be seen or received as a leader. Um, or like this is how you are legitimate as a leader, right? So I wanted to break that down a little bit. And 
um and it's been so inspiring to do this work um because i realized that you know where my questions stop like their questions start like they are already thinking and imagining about a liberated world. And I I think for those of us who have, you know, lived a few decades on this earth, I think it's, it's easy to be jaded. It's easy to lose sight of your imagination. It's easy to um, become exhausted and be like, okay, maybe there's no hope. And not to like romanticize that your own young people will always, you know, be the hopeful ones in the room. But I think they are asking some questions that like we aren't or like even folks who are older than us or in other generations like aren't. And that has been very integral in, um, you know, co-designing the program because now, you know, it's I am just like a community member in community with them and we are thinking through this together. Um, uh, and it's been really um, lovely to like, you know, learn in real time with them and connect the dots between the oppression that folks are experiencing everywhere and specifically young people are experiencing everywhere. Um, and they have been uh, very, very uh, passionate about learning about Palestine. Um, and even, you know, uh, you know, we have been hearing from, like older people that, oh, this is such a complicated issue. Like I need to study first in order to make up my mind or have an opinion, right? And I think something I really have been loving about the youth that I am um, connected with in New York City is that they are not undermining that study needs to happen, right? We need to be in constant like community study spaces and learn from one another and learn from books um, and learn from people on the ground. And we, it's not too complicated to understand, you know, um, that oppression is bad. Like, I think that's something um, that I feel like older folks, like, tend to, like, overcomplicate. And I think it's very, like, palpable amongst uh, the youth that, hey, no, this feels bad. This feels wrong. So I'm going to you know, find out what are the reasons why this feels that way rather than, you know, starting from like a neutral position um, and then trying to like do mental gymnastics um, to justify oppressive systems. Yeah, I, I definitely love hearing that, especially the curiosity and the like openness of young people. Didn't your, like you said, didn't your young people specifically ask you, like y'all were starting the program right as October 7th conflict was um, kind of breaking out and they asked you specifically can we actually shift to talk about Palestine like that's what we want to learn about right now right yeah yeah so my my partner and I um a, my colleague and I gave them three options that we could stick to the curriculum or we could completely abandon the program and give them some time to you know do whatever they need right now and they would still be paid um or we could specifically shift gears towards organizing for Palestine. And there was an overwhelming response, um, you know, saying that, yes, we want to like study and learn and organize about Palestine specifically. So we invited um, a Palestinian educator based here in New, uh, not New York, in the US, um, who will be, you know, coming in and engaging with the youth to, um, kind of co-build mutual aid networks that, you know, young people can uh, 
like learn the skills and apply it to their communities and overall like in in New York and supporting like Palestinians in New York and also the movements abroad. I think that's so powerful, especially on what you just said, where we have so many folks, particularly people in positions of power who are just sitting on their hands and hand wringing about like this, like, you know, what does it look like to call for a ceasefire or like really stepping away from this idea of having responsibility? You know, again, our people in power are literally the ones who are sending the weapons and approving the funding and have a strong hand in what's happening in Palestine. And yet when we ask to act in defense of the Palestinian people, it's like, oh, our hands are tied. And yet you have these young people here who are saying, actually, even though we're just young, we're just students in the United States, we still feel compelled to learn. So I would love to hear maybe, what do you think is the specific role or responsibility of young people right now, either from your own experience, perspective, or maybe what have you heard from young people about how do they feel compelled or complicit or like called to act right now? Yeah, and I want to, before I answer that, I want to say that, um, you know, we as a community also tend to overburden young people with the sense of responsibility without giving them the agency to make change, mm-hmm. right? So we we kind of look towards them as change makers and uh, folks who are giving us hope at this moment. But like, I, th- I think when we ask these questions, we also have to do a reflection ourselves, like how are we supporting them in doing the in doing the work or creating spaces for them to speak up and engage um, or making, you know, the spaces that we are creating like youth friendly. Um, right. So I think the role of young people right now is that um is taking up space, you know, um, and asking the questions that like, you know, the folks who were like knee deep in this corrupt systems, like are afraid to even forget, like ask them, they're afraid to even utter those concepts into existence, right? They, I think like young people um, play a very critical role in also having adults in their lives, like confront with the power um, um, that they have taken for granted. And I think that's where everything kind of like starts or and culminates, right? The relationship between um, youth and adults and like how oppressive those dynamics are and how we take those for granted. Um, I think that's how, that's what I have seen in my experience, like kind of replicates in and turns into like gender-based violence, like capitalistic, you know, notions of um, like self-worth and access to education um, access to organizing and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you've, you've talked a bit about specifically gender-based violence and then we've talked about the role and responsibility and pressure of young people. And you've mentioned this a little bit already, but together, especially in the U.S., we see how that grouped category of women and children um, and that narrative gets you weaponized to vilify Arab men. It gets weaponized to justify U.S. like militarism um, and, and so many different things. So I would love to hear from you about how does this narrative about the precarity of women and children and like their vulnerability and their need to be saved um, mix match with the reality that women in Palestine are also absolutely freedom fighters and that children in Palestine and around the world 
recognize when they are not being taken seriously and recognize their power and their position. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear about how is this narrative of women and children further marginalize women and children oftentimes, especially in war-torn paces, um, and how does it actually contradict the reality of agency that women and children have? Yeah, so the phrase women and children, like itself, right, it's kind of um, putting, like, there, there are so many, so many layers to this. So it's like, you're basically infantilizing women, like they're not really like full adults, like they're grouped at with children as like folks who don't have agency or maybe dependent on the men in their life um, to make decisions or to be protected, to be taken care of. Um, and it's also specifically in the context of like how this uh, is used to vilify Arab men. Um, you know, it's it's like an absolute like propaganda machine um you're essentially like taking away like agency from individuals from people right and you're like okay no like we are gonna save you from like your own like parents and husbands and partners and siblings like and I think like that's where like that in itself is violent Right. Like saying that, you no, know, your family members and your friends and um, your community members are disposable. Right. And and we are doing this to save you like that. That rhetoric is violent in itself and justifying violence. And like, how do you expect like a society to function like you know, like imagine like the trauma, like after like we lose a loved one, like how do you expect a society to be any safer or to not like continue to perpetuate violence amongst its like within itself and continue the cycle um, if you're like, if you're like violently like separating them and like killing like their community members? Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about how these different labels and categories and like particularly projections from the West simply serve to stratify the populations in war-torn places and justify who deserves their violence and who doesn't, who deserves protection and who doesn't. Um, so particularly, you know, closing it out and bringing it back to those of us in the United States. So those, those are folks who are working in gender-based violence organizations or reproductive justice organizations or who are children's advocates, you know, what do you think is that role and responsibility right now? Uh, we've heard, you know, we've seen some great and not so great statements put out by different orgs in the U.S. Um, who are attempting to make those connections between why is um, reproductive justice for all include freedom from war and from violence and include um, freedom from militarism. So I would just love to hear your closing thoughts on like, as someone working at a gender-based violence or as someone who's so deeply aware of these connections and intersections, what can those of us here who are working at these organizations who claim to be for um, gender justice and reproductive justice, like what is the role and responsibility right now for advocating for peace? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think that the like political education and building their analysis is the the like basic thing that every gender-based violence organization like must do before they even start working with like their local communities because it's so easy to perpetuate harm just in different ways if you don't have for example understanding of like power and control but you're you know trying to intervene in a community and 
you know, educate them about GBV or do preventative programs or you're supporting survivors after they have experienced violence. There's so many ways you can like fuck up and perpetuate more harm if you don't um uh, have a you know, thorough political understanding of your role in the larger infrastructure in the U.S. and then globally, because you specifically feminist organizations in the U.S. has been co-opted to justify too many wars abroad and and has harmed communities with, for example, over policing and policing of survivors in the U.S. So it's very, very like critical that we um, continue to build um, very thorough like political analysis and lexicon of understanding gender based violence and how how it operates. Yeah, absolutely. I think so many of us have so much to learn in moments like this of increased crisis when militarism and its contradictions expose all the ways in which war and militarism are never the answer, not to gender-based violence, not to the oppression of women anywhere, um, not to any conflict. So thank you so much, Sarajam, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Sarajam Sandi. And to our listeners, you can find them in the streets of New York City advocating for liberation for all. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., WBIA in New York City, KPFT in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. We'll be back after this break to hear from Code Pink co-founder Jody, Palestine campaigner Noor, and co-director Danica on how disinformation is used as a tool for genocide. I get scared. I do anything for my people, but I don't know what to do. I'm just scared. I'm cheery cry every day. You see all of the kids around me? They're just kids. Why wouldn't you just send a missile to them and kill them? News telling lies, check the facts that they cover Cause my people out here crying or they dying or they suffer And just notice for my people up in Gaza and Ramallah And it's free Palestine until it's back was motherfucker I'm a speaker for my people, fuck this rap shit Forcing children out their homes when they ain't have shit Killing mothers, children asking why there's no one here to love them And y'all really asking questions why I swore motherfuck them Cause I know that everyone knows it's time to take Palestine back this time We won't hesitate now, I know, I know that this is yeah. the sound of war What about in Uts, Ramallah, West Bank, yeah, for Gaza Two time for the people in Palestine strapped up, ready all black and a hop Don't worry about your back, I got you All gas, no brakes, no stoplights I'ma come through heavy in my pot like I do not want friends, I do not need fools Yes, I found peace, but I swear on God, I'm down for war. Rockets dropping, bullets popping, it's a war zone. And I got brothers in the checkpoint just to get home. How to get like that? How we let this happen? Better pick your side. Don't give me that all out matter. Are you riding? Ready for the action? One call, that's all, get it cracking. Click clack with the blowback, get I lick back in a ski match, ready for crazy. Know that everyone knows it's time to take Palestine back this time. We won't hesitate now. I know, I know that this is the sound. Cause of war. I know that everyone knows it's time to take Palestine back this time. We won't hesitate now. I know, I know that this is the sound of war.
So I want to turn to um, to Nora or Danica, whichever wants to start, to give us a little history of the occupation, which has been denied to most people that read mainstream media. Yeah, um, I think one piece of misinformation people might be hearing that I think is it's important to understand the greater history of the occupation of Palestine to to refute it is people will tell you. I mean, I had this interaction a lot on campus when I was doing Palestine organizing is people would say to me that um, Palestine was never a country and forget that people born in Palestine before 1948 had Palestine on their passports, had Palestine on their birth certificates, any form of like documentation of their life said Palestine on it. So forget that part or just maps saying Palestine and forget the fact that for hundreds of years, Palestine was subject to colonization and continues to be. Um, people don't just belong to a place because there is a formal nation state called whatever their country's name is. People belong to a place and call it home because they have lived there their entire lives. Their family, their parents have lived them there their entire lives. Their grandparents lived there their entire lives. They love the land. They're stewards of the land. They farm there. They get their food there. It's a deeper connection than whatever a nation, a modern day nation state can represent. Um, and using that argument to support the ethnic cleansing project of Palestinians has been, you know, something very disgusting to watch. So um, just to get a little bit into, you know, the history of the, the occupation, a lot of people will say it started in 1967 when um, Israel took parts of Egypt, parts of Syria, the West Bank and Gaza. Um, but that's not when it started. Um, in 1948, which is called the Nakba or the catastrophe, um, about 750,000 Palestinians uh, were expelled from their land. Hundreds of, I think, 500 villages were burned to the ground. Um, and and before this, you know, P Jewish people did live in in historic Palestine. Um, I think there's a good um, context for this if you all know Bella and Gigi Hadid their their father Muhammad Hadid was born a few months before the Nakba happened in 1948 and he actually had a Jewish family living near him who fled anti-semitism in Poland and moved to Palestine and you know they lived amongst each other um until the British, with the uh, the British, gave sort of the green light for the Zionist project known as Modern Day Israel, um, where uh, Zionist militias uh, overtook uh, Palestinian villages, like I said, slaughtered thousands of people, and pushed a bunch of Palestinians, thousands of Palestinians, created the largest refugee population in the world. Um, off their own land, into refugee camps in their own land, uh, some into the West Bank, some into Gaza, and some into the surrounding uh, Arab nations. Thank you. Um, so maybe you could tell, um, I I also you know wanted to check in on the creation of Israel 
um, was a Zionist project, which is different than being something rooted in the Jewish religion. It was actually a project of Zionists. And, you know, what do we know about what was intended in the founding? Are there, you know, voices that had a plan? Yeah, uh, for sure. And I think one thing to note is that the Zionist project was to establish a Jewish majority uh, nation state. So in order to do this, there's been explicit documentation of doing population control on non-Jewish people that live there. And that's, you know, exactly why you're seeing what's happening in Gaza happen right now. And it's exactly why um, Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel are effectively legally second class citizens that don't have the same rights as um, Jewish Israelis. Um, <clears throat> and so it's always been um, uh, a, a core of the Zionist project that they needed to maintain a Jewish majority. Um, so any sort of population control, there's been, you know, sterilization projects of, of women um, so that they cannot have children. Um, there's been obviously um, an, an, an increased encroachment on Palestinian land in the West Bank. Um, and I see Nurzan, so I don't know if she wants to add anything here. I just wanted to add that when the Zionist project um, that manifested into the state of Israel was actually being created, um, the founder of modern Zionism, Theodore Herzl, actually, um, it's very well documented mentioned in all of his works that he was weaponizing anti-Semitism and racism in order to make the case uh, for settling the Jewish state in Palestine. So not only did he play on the anti-Semitism of uh, world leaders at the time, especially the British, Arthur Balfour, who actually uh, made the Balfour Declaration, which is one paragraph that gave uh, Zionists the green light to fully colonize Palestine in the violent way that they did, he was actually a huge anti-Semite. Um, you can just, from documentation in British Parliament, he says very crazy things, which is why um, he was so eager to establish a state that Jewish people can go to. Uh, not only that, but he, uh, Theodore Herzl, was playing on racism against Arabs in order to make the case to settle in Palestine. He actually said that Israel would be like a vanguard like sort of a barrier uh against barbaric asia like into europe so like the way that palestine is it's like next to europe at the end of like the middle east you know next to africa so they were saying like this is a perfect position to like protect europe from the barbarians that live here so the founding all together was extremely racist and if we can like kind of connect that to the United States where we see such a racist foundation here, we can see those problems still manifesting like hundreds of years later. So who's to say that 75 years after the occupation, like somehow this racist foundation has like now disappeared. Clearly it's very deeply embedded into the founding of the country itself and will manifest um, into the way that country operates from 1948 until today. And I'll add one quote from uh, David Ben-Gurion, who the airport in Tel Aviv is named after. Um, he literally said, we must expel Arabs and take their places. 
So um, maybe one of you could uh, talk about the Napka. Um, like, what what was that, and um, uh, how do people who live in Palestine? You you kind of spoke to it, Danica, but is there um, maybe Noor, if you can, you know, share what that is for you and and growing up and how you know you your life relates to that. Definitely. Um, so I actually consider myself to be very lucky. Uh, the village that I'm from, both my parents are from there and it's in the West Bank. Um, and it hasn't been taken over uh, necessarily. I mean, of course, they still live under occupation uh, in my village. And there's actually like two settlements right next to my village, which if you just know the nature of settlements, they just encroach closer and closer and closer until they eventually uh, completely take over whatever village they're next to. But to just talk about the Nekba in a greater sense, I mean, a lot of my friends are from places that they will never be able to visit or um, their parents will never be able to visit. They they could have been born there. And right, we know that Palestinians don't have a right to return. So they can't re return to their lands. Um, I can give you a good example of this, actually. Um, there is this one village. Um, it's near the border of Lebanon. It's called Igret. Uh, it was this like beautiful village where people like farmed like olive trees, figs. The land there is very fertile and it's such just amazing use of the land is to just farm uh, there. And Igret was taken over during the Nakba. Um, and it was turned into the largest military base in Israel. And it was actually all the um, farmland there was completely uprooted and destroyed. And they planted pine trees, uh, which aren't native to Palestine. And they actually erode the soil there. So this act of settler colonialism, it's not just like an attack on the people, but it's also an attack on the land. And it proves how you know, removing the indigenous people from a land will destroy, it's not It's not even good for the environment. It, just, it will destroy the land because settlers, you know, are settlers. They don't have um, that general, that generational knowledge and relationship to a land that they would be able to take care of it um, that way. And actually the people of Ikrit have um, resisted in many ways, uh, nonviolent resistance. You know, they camped out in Ikrit, you know, trying to get their land back. And the Israeli government actually has a document that says people in Ikrit have a right to return. They can actually return to their land, but that documentation within the own like Zionist government is not being honored. So this document actually exists within the Israeli government, yet it's not being honored. So you know, the Nakba is not something that started and ended in 1948. Like Danica mentioned, 67, when other lands were taken. Um, but it's actually something that's ongoing. When people don't have the right to return, the Nakba is still living, right? When Palestinians uh, in the West Bank are still living uh, under occupation, the Nakba is still alive and well, right? If Palestinians are constantly under threat of you know, their neighbors in settlements, neighbors, um, taking over their land, the Nakba is still alive and well. Um, and when Palestinians, you know, can just be killed in the streets or detained for no reason other than 
being a Palestinian man or, you know, looking a little suspicious or no reason at all, you know, that's the Nakba. So when we talk about the Nakba, it's important that we don't talk about it like it's something that happened in the past, kind of like what Jody was saying about the racism. It's something that is still alive and ongoing. And we see it right now when we see um, almost like 10,000 Palestinians being murdered in less than a month. That's that's the Nakba right there. 15,000 Palestinians were murdered in 1948. So when we're approaching that number, what else can we call it but the Nakba? Thank you. Um, so let's, you know, keep talking about the misinformation because that is what this week is about. And I, you know, as you're listening to these two women, just thinking about, you know, how your relationship to the information has been. So um, I want to start first by asking, you know, Danica, you first and then you, Noor. What is the misinformation around this moment that most infuriates you, where you just think my head's going to explode? <laughs> it is hard to choose. <laughs> it is really hard to choose. I've I've felt a combination of insane and um, just at a loss for words over the last few weeks, but one that came to mind instantly, especially with the last two days, Israel committing massacres repeatedly on a refugee camp in Gaza. Um, the There's a talking point regurgitated by Zionists about Hamas using human shields. Um, they say this whenever Israel attacks a hospital, a church, anytime Israel kills civilians in Gaza, um, which has been nonstop over the last three weeks, they say that Hamas is using human shields. Um, they said this during the Great March of Return. They they said they've been saying this for years. And um, it makes me feel crazy because they... The, the occupation has shoved 2 million people on a very, very small plot of land, um, built a fence around it, uh, only has one exit controlled by the Israelis and the other one's controlled by the uh, by Egypt, but um, only two exits. Uh, Palestinians can't even leave for medical care. Um, and they are saying that Hamas is using human shields. So they're saying that Hamas has tunnels under these hospitals. Hamas has, um, and one thing important is critically important to understand about Hamas is it's not just a military wing. It is the elected government of Gaza. Mm -hmm. So of course, Hamas has government, uh, government buildings that do things like healthcare services, social services, and that sort of thing. So any government building in Gaza is, is technically Hamas. So they use this and they're just saying Hamas is using human shields who are babies in incubators, who are patients getting care from already getting attacked by Israeli bombardment in hospitals. They These human shields are Muslims praying in mosques. They are Christians praying in churches. They are kids in schools. So it's just... Every single Palestinian in Gaza is being called a human shield and therefore is collateral damage for whatever Israel wants to do in Gaza. Um, so I, I really encourage everyone to reject this idea of human shields 
the the only people pushing the human shields uh talking point is the Israeli military. Um so that's that's one thing that's been um making me a bit upset over the last few weeks. Thank you, Noor. What's yours? And you can share more than one. I know there's a list. <laughs> I know. I was like, can I just pinpoint one? I'm not sure. But I think one thing that is really weaponized in order to like justify all of this is the idea that this is some sort of like religious war and that like the reason that Israel was attacked on October 7th was because it was an attack on Judaism, not that it was um within the framework of settler colonialism and i think that is very important um it's true that the majority of people in palestine are muslim but that's not the uh, that's not like the end all be all like there are christians in palestine there used to be jews in palestine um there's people who don't follow any religion in palestine and israel has declared war on all of these people so you know to say that this is some sort of like religious issue is completely false because, you know, some of these people being murdered are children who don't even have any pro concept or awareness probably of what religion is like, who, who's to say that, you know, the tens of probably over 100 uh, children under one year old are, are assigned to some sort of religion. That's kind of like that kind of doesn't even make sense. Um so this is not just also about like what's happening right now. I think that's something that's also getting to me. Like people keep uh, talking about October 7th, you know, since October 7th, since whatever. It's not since October 7th. It's since 1948. It's since the siege on Gaza. It's this isn't something that just started happening right now. And I think by, you know, playing um, on the religious card, you know, allows for like the fuel of um you know, saying that this is anti-Semitism and framing this as a religious war. And then also by not acknowledging, you know, the history that happened before October 7th, it makes it a lot easier to peddle that lie because people aren't seeing this in the full context of what's been going on for 75 years. Um, and I think if people had that knowledge, they would probably be able to navigate uh, the media a little bit better. And they would probably be able to put this in like a lot better context. And it would definitely end with them having much more sympathy for Palestinians and, you know, much greater understanding of the suffering that they have um, been subjected to by Israel for the past 75 years. Uh, and I think that, you know, everybody would just have a much better understanding if they had those contexts. There's a lot more, but I'll, I'll, I'll save it. So, um, one of the big issues I think in the misinformation uh, circles around, do Palestinians in Gaza have a right to defend themselves? Um, and that whole contortion of that, can you talk about that? Yeah, if we're talking like widely accepted, um, just like humanitarian law, yes, Palestinians have the right to defend themselves. I think what we're seeing right now is the extent that Palestinians are even able to defend themselves. I think if Palestinians really had like the ability to defend themselves, probably like almost like 9,000 of them wouldn't be dead right now. So I think like the short answer is yes, Palestinians do have a right to defend themselves. Um, but we kind of see what that looks like now and it doesn't 
it's not really much, but yeah, maybe you, you can speak to that. No, no, no. I think you should speak to that because I think that's one of the also disinformation pieces of, first of all, even calling it a war because it's not a war because wars are between two armies and people not understanding an occupation, you know, what an occupier is and what an occupied is. And, um, and maybe just the part about the, the disinformation that is always trying to get people to see this as two equals, um, if mm -hmm. you could speak to that. Yeah, so what is going on right now is not a war. It's a liberation movement um, against a settler colonial occupier that has backed Palestinians into a corner for 75 years, deprived them of their dignity, deprived them of their freedom of movement, deprived them of their access to water, deprived them of their uh, opportunity to have a life that they lead, that a life that is taken into their own hands, has subject subjected them to violence, you know, has demolished their homes, murdered their families. Think about a Palestinian growing up in Gaza who has lived through, you know, at least a few wars, like just, just to give like on the shorter end of the example. This person who grew up in Gaza, was born in Gaza, maybe they've had a family member who was murdered. Maybe they've had, um, you know, somebody they know or themselves house being demolished by Israel or being airstriked or they weren't able to see their friends growing up because it, it was dangerous or it was at a time where Israel was bombarding Gaza. Like, try to put yourself in that mindset and think about what that child would be conditioned to think about Israel growing up. We cannot reasonably expect the, these people to have some sort of positive uh, outlook on their occupier because that's not what this is. This, you know, it's, a, it's an occupier and an occupied people. And that is not the same as two sovereign countries at war because Gaza, even if Hamas is in control, is not even sovereign. Like clearly... Israel can cut off the water, they can not allow food, they can destroy the any electricity and internet, and they can control who goes in and out. Tell me how that's a sovereign country. What other sovereign country in the world has this amount of restrictions placed on them by another entity? We would never call that a sovereign country. We would call that a colony or like a country or a land under occupation. And when people are occupied, they're going to have um a desire to resist to resist the violence that has been um sub like that they've been subjected to for 75 years and we can't expect people to allow themselves to ex accept this life like livelihood of being a victim and to just like be okay with that that's just this just not even reasonable like if we just think about how pe people naturally are if somebody is discriminate like you're facing discrimination you're never just going to be like okay like but i shouldn't you know I, I should just accept this this is it's not how people work thank you um danica do you have anything to add there um not much i think no you did a really good job and i people will hear you know um pundits or political elite in the u.s talking about how um they would imply that they would do things differently 
than people in Gaza are doing them. But not one of them has lived under occupation like Noor's talking about. Not one of them has grown up their entire life in Gaza and never been able to leave. Um, not one of them have has experienced this degree of dignity and human dignity being stripped from them. And so they really can't talk about what they would do. They really can't. Because um, sometimes like people have throughout history risked their lives for dignity. Um, sometimes we want dignity more than we want to be alive. And so um, they really don't they really don't know what they would do. And I think um, if you hear someone saying that, you could just tell them you live in the United States. You you do not live under a military occupation. That was the incredibly passionate and knowledgeable Noor, Danica and Jody on the ongoing Nakba and the crisis of disinformation. It's as important as ever that we all do our part to combat mis- and disinformation, to fact-check and employ critical media literacy, and to call on those around us to learn and be informed. As we climb past the numbers of the 1948 Nakba, Palestinians need those of us in the belly of the beast to support them on all fronts. Confront the media for their complicity, call on our elected officials for a permanent ceasefire and an end to the occupation, Educate those around us on the truth of the Palestinian cause and never stop talking about Palestine. That's all, folks. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBIA in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink Code Pink, for freedom Code Pink, for peace Was not Iraq, but Iran.